Well, tonight we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42, a topic that is uh, often used, a phrase that you hear thrown around a lot, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This law of retribution has been around since even before the time of Moses. In the Latin, it's referred to as lex talionis. And you can find it even recorded in, by, on the tables, the law of Hammurabi, the Babylonian king that was king, like I said, even before the time of Moses. And God's Word records this truth for us as well. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Let's look at this together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. And I'll read through verse 42. The Bible says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. And that's true. But Jesus here has a perspective that we need to listen to tonight. He says, But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. We'll get back to that in a minute, because if you just heard Jesus say that all by Himself, you would think that He was going against God Himself, that you resist not evil, He says, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will... Sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat. Let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. In one of the founding documents of our nation, the Declaration of Independence, it states, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Today we live in a country that is focused on rights, civil rights, women's rights, human rights, prisoners' rights, workers' rights, and on and on it goes. And while it often would seem like it would be an honorable thing to stand up for the rights of others, unfortunately in our day, most people are not so interested in standing up for the rights of others as they are interested in standing up for their own rights. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20. He said to the believer, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God? Listen, he says, And ye are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Sinful man wants what he thinks is his own. When you are focused on protecting what is yours, 
you will be inclined to hurt anyone that takes what you believe belongs to you. Even beyond this, most will take the position that even retaliation with interest is justified and it is a natural expression of expressing your own rights. The problem with this, while it does resonate with many, it's very natural to us, the problem with this is that it is the epitome of selfishness. Too much concern for your own rights comes from too much selfishness and it leads to lawlessness. When your supreme concern is getting and keeping what is yours, then anyone or anything, including the law that gets in the way of your interest, is worth breaking. For the Christian, it ought to come as no surprise that your rights will be trampled on. Paul experienced this, and he wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. He says, Am not I an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Paul had seen Him with his own eyes. He says, Are not ye my work in the Lord? He looks at the church there he's writing to. Aren't you the ones that I've worked for? Paul says down in verse 4 of chapter 9, Have we not power to eat and drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles? Paul says, I'm free to eat what I want. I'm free to drink what I want. I'm free to marry who I want. He says, it's the brethren of the Lord and even Cephas, Peter did. Or he says, or I only and Barnabas, have, we, have not we power to forbear working? He writes further in verse 12, If others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? Paul says this, Nevertheless, we have not used this power. He says we're free to do these things, but we haven't used this freedom. Why? He says we suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul says, Barnabas and I, we're willing to give up our own rights, our own freedom, so that the gospel of Christ would not be hindered. Now, in studying for this and preparing for this tonight, as I read and thought about this, even in my own life, I will tell you, this goes against the grain of our flesh, of who we are naturally in our own beings. What are you saying? To not stand up for our own rights? Not at the sake of the gospel. Paul willingly set aside his rights for the sake of the gospel and the welfare of others. But even Paul the Apostle, while he is a great example of setting aside his own personal rights, he's not a perfect example. Towards the end of the book of Acts, we'll get there in a few weeks on Sunday morning, but in chapter 23, Paul is brought before the religious and civil leaders of his day. In chapter 23, verse 1, it says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, this was the religious council, the Pharisees there, he said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them, that stood by him to smite him 
on the mount. Imagine Paul. He says, I've not done anything wrong. And the high priest says, smite him on the mouth for saying that. Then said Paul to him, to Ananias, the high priest, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. See, in the law, of, in the Jewish law, you weren't supposed to smite a prisoner until he was convicted. Paul says, you're wrong for, tell, for telling him to smite me on the mouth. But listen, those that stood by, verse 4, said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Paul, don't you know who you're talking to? It seems as if Ananias wasn't wearing his high priestly robes and Paul didn't realize that he was speaking to the high priest. And Paul, in his humility, said, I wist not, brethren, I didn't know that he was the high priest. And then he quotes scripture to show that what he had just done was wrong. Paul says, For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Even Paul's anger in the moment got the best of him. Who are you to smite me on the mouth? You shouldn't be doing that. And he quoted scripture to condemn his own actions from the word of God. So, when Jesus says here that we are to not resist evil. Is Jesus contradicting the Old Testament statements found here in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42? The answer to that is no. Jesus never contradicted the Old Testament. In fact, just a few verses sooner in Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The scribes and Pharisees insisted on personal rights and vengeance. But I wonder if many times we do the same. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us His now fifth illustration that contrasts the righteousness of man with the righteousness of of God. He uses what was a commonly held to rule of law, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. If someone hurts you and you hurt them back equal to how they hurt you, most people would say that's justifiable. That's man's righteousness. But Jesus is going to contrast this for us tonight between what man thinks is good and holy and right and what God says of how we are to behave and live our lives. We must not twist God's holy law to serve our selfish purposes. When Jesus says in Matthew 5.38, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Exodus 21.24 says, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. It goes on and on. Fracture for fracture, right? Leviticus 24.20 says, Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. Deuteronomy 19.21 says, The nine eyes shall not pity, but life shall go for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The punishment should fit what? The crime. Today, you might hear your kids or you may say this to one of your children. 
tit for tat, or we've heard this in our government lately, quid pro quo. That's what these terms all refer to. This law has been around since the very beginning. So I want us to look, first of all, though, at the purpose, the purpose of this law, the, the lex talionis, eye for an eye. That was the, that's the Latin phrase that refers to this idea. Well, we can see that it was to further curtail crime, right? If you hurt somebody with your hand and they hurt you back in return, that would curtail crime. Another purpose was to prevent excessive punishment. Because if somebody hurts you a little bit, what do you want to do? You don't want to hurt them a little bit. You want to hurt them a lot. So they won't ever hurt you again. And so this law was to prevent excessive punishment based on personal vengeance and angry retaliation. Lamech, one of the early characters in Scripture, he boasted about his angry retaliation. In Genesis 4, verse 23-24, he said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. They hurt me a little bit, I killed them. And he says, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. That's excessive retaliation. That's what you see on the road when somebody gets cut off and somebody else says, okay, I'm going to pull out a gun and shoot you because you cut me off. It's excessive retaliation. See, when we live life just trying to get what is ours and standing up for our own rights, what happens? We end up running over other people and even being willing to break the law just to try to get what's ours. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 20 says, And those which remain shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. That's why God established this law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Punishment was to match but not exceed the harm done by the offense itself. But here's a really important point. Don't miss this. Each of these accounts where he refers to an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth are always used in the concept or in the context not of personal liberty and freedom, but rather the civil justice system. In other words, if someone hurts you personally, you don't get to personally retaliate against them if you want to be in line with God's word. But the law can bring judgment against those evil doers. If you want to do more study on this, read Exodus 21 to 23. Read Leviticus 24, read Deuteronomy 19. All of these things in context are dealing with the civil justice system. And that is where this phrase, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, is always used. It's in the context not of your personal relationship with somebody else. So that means, hey, brother, if your sister slaps you, you don't get to slap her back. Well, she hit me first. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, right? It's in the Bible. I can do it. No. That part doesn't apply to you because it's not a civil justice issue. And when God was speaking about this, it was always in the context of a civil 
justice context. You see, this law was a just law because it matched the punishment to the offense. It was a merciful law because it limited the desire of the human heart to seek retribution beyond what an offense deserved. But it was also a beneficent law because it protected society by restraining wrongdoing. God says very clearly in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. This was Jonathan Edwards' text in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God will bring judgment. He will bring vengeance. And when He brings it, it will not be a good day for those who stand against God. He says, For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. But who does vengeance belong to? It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. Romans 12, verse 19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. So you don't have the right to take an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto the wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. You don't have the right to make retribution. Even Proverbs speaks about this in Proverbs 24, 29, when it says, Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. It's a tough one because I grew up in a home with siblings. Well, they did it to me first. Well, that doesn't give you a right to do anything back to them. What? Doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye? It does. But you're using it out of context if you're trying to support your ability to punch somebody back because they punched you first. Or to get somebody back because they got you first. Proverbs actually says in chapter 25, verse 21, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. Matthew 5, later on in Jesus' sermon in verse 44, He said, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Paul wrote again in Romans 12, verse 20, He said, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. That's the law of Christian retribution, to give grace when others show anger and wrongdoing towards us. So this is the purpose of this law, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's not for personal retribution, but it is to be a directive to the civil court system on how evil should be handled in society. And it's a good law. It's a useful law. In fact, it would be wonderful if our own court system followed such a law anymore. Instead of letting people go free who've committed heinous crimes and not having them pay for their sin. So we see, secondly, though, tonight, I want you to notice the perversion of this tradition because it had been perverted by 
the scribes and Pharisees. We go back to our text. Jesus says in Matthew 5, in verse 38, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. What was going on? Well, it was being taken out of context. Because if this becomes something that applies to you personally, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, then every person becomes their own judge, jury, and executioner. It's my right. But God's law doesn't give you and me individual license. When an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth becomes a mandate for violence, it is being misunderstood and misapplied to your own purposes. There's the purpose of this. There's the perversion. But I want to spend the majority of our time tonight on the perspective of divine truth. What is Jesus really telling us to do? If he's not saying that if someone punches you and knocks your tooth out, that you don't have the right to punch them back and take their tooth out, then what is he saying? Well, he says that you resist not evil. We've already seen that we are not to retaliate in personal relationships. Don't retaliate in personal relationships. But I want to look at that phrase a little closer, that you resist not evil. Because you might ask the question, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to resist evil? I mean, the Bible does say to resist the devil. James 4, 7, 1 Peter 5, 9, both tell us to resist the devil. Jesus did in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, when he made a, a, a whip out of cords and he cleaned all the evil out of the temple. So are we supposed to resist the devil? Yes. So we know the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So what does Jesus mean when he says resist not evil? I want to give you another place where the believer ought to resist evil. We ought to resist evil in the church. In Galatians 2, verse 11, turn over there really quickly. Galatians 2 and verse 11. Paul resists the Judaizers here. And he said, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with them, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Paul here is dealing with evil in the church, and this evil is being carried out by none other than Peter and Barnabas. Well, there were others with him. But what, they, what were they doing? They were muddying up the waters when it came to the gospel. They were making it seem as if you had to keep yourself pure in order to gain salvation before God. You had to be circumcised. You couldn't eat certain meats. You couldn't do all these things. And that is not what the gospel taught at all. And so Paul withstood him to the face. And he says, you're confusing these 
young believers, these Gentiles. You're making them think that salvation is not by grace, it's also by works. So Paul withstood this evil, and when he did, there was a great return to the truth of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 13, Paul dealt with another evil in the church. There was immorality in the church. A man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul writes about was fornicating with his father's wife. Paul said in verse 13 of chapter 5, But them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. In Matthew chapter 18, God gives us the directions for how we ought to go to somebody who's doing wrong, that we ought to first go to them privately and say, I think you're doing wrong. And the goal is that they would repent and your brother or sister in Christ would be restored. But if they don't respond, then you're supposed to take somebody else with you and talk to them again privately, trying to restore them, to get them to see the error of their ways. He says, only after several of these times, then and only then do you bring them to the church. But again, the goal is always restoration. I believe if the church would resist evil and speak out for the truth and preach the righteousness and holiness of God, if we had a pure church, we might see the church having a much stronger purifying effect in this world. So we are to resist evil. So what is Jesus saying in Matthew 5, 39 when He says, Resist not evil. Let me give you another place where evil should be resisted. The government should resist evil. In Romans 13, verse 4, it tells us that we are to submit ourselves to governmental authority, but that the government is there to stand against evil. And to do good. The only way that evil can be restrained is by law. Our society needs to stand up to evil by examining and applying God's law. But when God's law is forsaken, His righteous standards are forgotten, then His law is no longer followed. And we end up in a place that scholars refer to as antinomianism, which means without law, no law, doing away with law. And antinomianism is just as much an enemy of the gospel as legalism is an enemy of the gospel. When the church does not preach God's righteousness, justice, and eternal punishment of the lost, it is not preaching the fullness of the gospel. And both the society and the church have suffered for it. When the church does not hold its membership accountable to God's standards, a great deal of the moral influence of the church is sacrificed. And sadly, in our culture today, the church is often mocked and laughed at because church leaders fall into sin. People who hold themselves up as godly people steal and embezzle from the church. People go about doing all kinds of wicked things and yet claim to be part of of the church. I'm not saying you have to be perfect to come to a church, but what I'm saying is when you're sinning, you need to deal with your sin. You need to confess it to God. You need to make it right. 
Don't pretend that your sin doesn't exist. We don't need false holiness. We don't need hypocrisy in the church. We know we don't have perfection because we're all made out of flesh. But we need to be honest about our struggle. And we need to deal with our sin. Because when we don't, it does great harm to the name of Christ. And it causes many to turn away from Him. So we are never to lower God's standard of justice. So again, let me ask the question, what does Jesus mean when He says, resist not evil? Let's go back to our text because Jesus says here, resist not evil. The word resist here means to set against or to oppose. And here in the context, it is referring to harm that is done to you personally by someone who is evil. Just as in the Old Testament context, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, we're dealing with civil justice issues, not personal issues. So too, Jesus is saying here, if you've tried to twist this idea of eye for an eye and tooth for tooth to give yourself the right to hit people back when they hit you, then you are resisting the wrong thing. You are not to resist those who would do evil to you. That's really what he's saying here. Don't resist the evil one who's doing evil to you personally. And then he gives us four different examples, four different human rights to illustrate the principle of non-retaliation. Let me give those to you. First of all, there's the human right of dignity. Dignity. And he refers to that in verse number 39. He says that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. You've heard it said, turn the other cheek. Now, why did he pick this one? Well, in Jewish culture, one of the greatest offenses that you could give to somebody else personally to offend their dignity would be to slap them in the face. Amen. And that's still true today, wouldn't you say? Somebody slaps you in the face, boy, that it stings for a moment, but it just makes you mad. Why? Because somebody has assaulted your dignity. Jesus, when he cleaned out the temple, he resisted evil, but Jesus did not hit back when he was struck on the cross. You see, when someone attacks your right to dignity, according to what Christ is teaching here, you are not to defend that right by retaliation. Leave the protection and defense of your dignity in God's hands. Knowing that one day you will live and reign with Him in His kingdom. Think about it. If your primary purpose in this world as a believer is to share the gospel with those who are lost. And let's imagine for a second that your life was completely focused on actually sharing the gospel with those who needed it and making disciples, training your children. Wherever you went, you were trying to point people to Jesus Christ, right? And let's just say that something happened as you were doing that. Maybe you were out talking to someone about Christ or Maybe you were talking to your neighbor and they got upset about something and they slapped you in the face. If you slap them back, does that do anything to help further the cause of Christ? Does that bring them any closer to trusting Christ as their Savior? Now, 
Is it an assault on your dignity? Absolutely. Is it wrong for them to do that? For sure. But you hitting them back does no good as far as pointing them towards Christ. Yes, you maintain your honor and your dignity, but in so doing, maybe you've lost something much greater, the opportunity to point them to Christ. We are to respond in humility, not focusing on revenge or retaliation, but in gentleness and meekness. And he gives us a second example here. The first was dignity. The second is security. Security. Look at verse 40. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. So this is talking about sued, like with legal judgment against you. So if someone had a legal right against you for a certain amount, then you ought to be willing to pay that amount and even more if that's what it takes in order to show your regret for wrongdoing and to show you're not bitter or resentful against the one who has sued us. Hmm. This one's always tough. Like, told you the story about when I had a warrant out for my arrest. Didn't feel like it was right, and it wasn't. But I still had to go through the process of getting it dealt with. Felt like my security was assaulted unnecessarily. But me getting up and yelling at the police officer for the mistake that he made, or yelling at the judge, or yelling at the lady in the office who couldn't seem to get the mail sent to my house properly when it was uh, supposed to give me the information that I needed, that wasn't going to do anything to help point people to Jesus Christ. Now, I made it out. I didn't even get arrested. But it was frustrating nonetheless. See, when you respond right, even when it's your security that's being attacked, you show the love of Christ. You show the love of Christ. You have to be willing to give up what is even rightfully yours before being vengeful towards somebody else. The third illustration that he gives us is the one of liberty. Liberty. We love liberty. What's the Bible say here in verse number 41 of Matthew 5? And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Did you know during this time period there was a Roman law that stated, because remember the Romans had conquered all of this area, and they said, if a Roman soldier comes to you and says, carry my pack for me, carry my load for me, you were compelled to carry it a mile, at least a Roman mile. Now imagine if you were a conquered person, you're under the Roman rule, and a Roman soldier who has food to eat whenever he wants it, he has a place to sleep, he has everything provided for, and here you're working basically under their authority, and he comes to you and says, hey, carry my bag for me. You have to stop whatever you're doing, wherever you were headed, whatever you had to do, and you have to walk a mile with him. That would be so frustrating. He's taking away your liberty, your freedom, your ability to go where you want, do what you want. <coughs> and what does Jesus say? If someone says to go with you a mile, even carrying 
their burden for them, what should you do? Go within two miles. Go over and beyond. And then he gives us the fourth illustration, that of property. Verse 42, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Surrender your own property. Can I remind you of something? Nothing you have truly belongs to you. It all belongs to God. We are not required to respond to every foolish, selfish request made of us. That's not what he's teaching us here. Sometimes giving somebody what they want doesn't help them. It does more harm than good. But we ought to offer to give help as soon as we know of a need. We ought not to withhold from others when we have the opportunity to actually help them move forward. Jesus here, He's not undercutting civil justice. That belongs in a courtroom. But He's undercutting personal selfishness. It's impossible to live for self and to live for Christ at the same time. You can't do it. You say, but these are mine. These are my rights. Life. Liberty, the pursuit of happiness, property, they are. But the gospel is more important. It's more important. Paul wrote in Romans 14, 8, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. I wonder, do we live like that when we're going down Shepherd? When you're on I-45 or 610, do we live like that in the grocery store when somebody jumps in front of you? Do we live like that as we go through our society with all of the people out trying to get their own way for themselves? Do you live like that when someone calls you a name, when someone pushes you around? George Mueller was a man that God used in a mighty way he started a number of orphanages, and he learned to live by faith. At one time, he had over 2,000 orphans under his care, and he never asked anybody for a penny. You say, where did all of his money come from? Was he rich? No. It all came from God. He just prayed about every need. He wouldn't even share the needs with people. And George Mueller wrote this, There was a day when I died utterly died to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, and his tastes and his will. I died to the world, to its approval and its censure. I died to the approval or even blame of my brethren and friends. And since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. This is what Abraham did when he gave his best land to Lot. This is what Joseph did when he embraced and kissed his very own brothers who had sold him into slavery. This is what David did when he wouldn't take advantage of King Saul who was seeking to take David's life. This is what Elisha did when he fed the enemy Assyrian army. This is what Stephen did when he prayed for those who were stoning him to death. And this is what every believer ought to do who by the Holy Spirit's power seeks to be 
perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Don't take this Old Testament law, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, and use it as your personal mandate for vengeance and retribution. That's what Jesus is saying. This isn't used for your own personal benefit. Rather, as a believer, you ought to be willing to give up whatever it takes for the cause of Christ. And remember, he gave it all up for you and for me. Don't live for your own rights. Live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. Father, your word is quick and it's powerful and it's sharp. And Lord, even in sharing this message tonight, you've cut deep into my heart. Lord, I pray that you would use this truth because we live in a society that says, if you push me, I'll push you. If you hit me, I'll hit you. I'm going to stop you from ever doing that again. Lord, we live in a society that is eager to take what it views as its own. But Lord, everything we have comes from you. Help us to trust you enough with it that if someone were to try to take it for themselves, we would trust you just to provide all that we need. Lord, this isn't a scripture that means we ought to be a, a doormat. We ought to stand for truth and righteousness. We ought to protect our families and take care of what you've given to us to steward. But Lord, may we always put the cause of the gospel first in whatever we do and say. That we should, as you say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And know that all these things will be added unto us. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us strength. And give us humility. In Jesus' name I pray.